0: Hello everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years. I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisor. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, i always intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today to talk to Chris with Hidden Layer, one of the 10 Sandbox RSA competitors for 2023, about their solution and his motivation. Chris, can you please tell me about yourself and the company?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Evgeny. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. We founded a company called Hidden Layer. It's an organization to secure artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's one of the major new expansions in the threat landscape that's really very pervasive about every organization out there is trying to figure out how they can apply artificial intelligence to their hardware and software products and and it's a fantastic step forward for humanity in general when you think about all of the different technologies and benefits that this technology brings but it's also incredibly vulnerable this is a very new technology and we haven't kicked the tires all the way down and so it's heavily open source influenced right now, there's a lot of opportunity to abuse it. And that's exactly what we set out to defend against.
0: Yeah, I think we all watch Terminator. So we know what happened. We don't know what's happening with AI. And I definitely <laughs> want to know what's happening and what's going on there. Now I'm wondering hidden layer. OSI has seven layers depending on the model. Is hidden layer related to OSI or it's something else?
1: Ah, great question. Great question. We should keep it vague there just for the sake of mystery. But A hidden layer is actually, it's a little bit of a double entendre in data science. In a neural network model, you have your input layers, your output layers, and then your interior layers are actually referred to as a hidden layer. And then also it's a little bit of a play on words. We want to be a bit of a hidden layer in your security. You shouldn't have to worry too much about us being there. One of our core beliefs is that data scientists shouldn't have to worry about security. They should be able to solve problems. They should be able to build models. They should be able to deploy those models and not worry about whether or not those models are hardened enough against attackers in the real world. Likewise, we believe security operators should be able to defend, and they should be empowered to defend machine learning without having to be data scientists themselves. So if we can be a hidden layer in that sort of ecosystem of those two domains and support them both without them having to think about it quite so often, then we're successful in our job.
0: I think it's definitely different world right now when security used to be a showstopper. And right now we want security to go with the business, support the business, and adapt to the business as well. And definitely don't stop the business and make sure everybody understand how it's working. Great. Company is relatively new. It's around year and a half. And this is the, usually the first question I ask the people. Like, what was the motivation? Like, what happened year and a half ago? It was still pandemic or end of pandemic that decided, please, maybe by yourself, always partners to open the company.
1: Actually, we were born out of a real-world attack. Myself and my co-founders worked at a company called Silence. I was the vice president of research and intelligence there. My co-founders and I have actually traveled together the last six different organizations. So we worked together for a very long time, but it was during our time at Silence that we were attacked with an adversarial machine learning attack. Just a quick overview, Silence was an organization, for those of you not familiar, that used machine learning models to really take the next step in antivirus. And now all of the next generation endpoint detection companies are doing something similar, but essentially what we were trying to do is really get around the problem that occurred early in antivirus, which was for a long time, antivirus was just a list of bad things. And we would check your environment to see if any of those bad things were present. But it meant we weren't very successful against new threats. We had to see them before we could build signatures around them. So silence building a machine learning model to predict whether something we had never seen before was malicious was a very big jump forward because we could start detecting threats that we had never seen before. And I was there and it was actually in 2019 when our machine learning model that was used to defend windows environments was attacked. And this was not a traditional network attack. This was a adversarial machine learning attack where. The attacker wanted to start enumerating things about our machine learning model, learn how to abuse it so they could build a universal bypass to be able to attack anybody who was using Silence Protect as a defense mechanism. It was pretty novel back then. We didn't really know what was going on, but we led the response effort, and it was highly consequential. We had to put a lot of resources towards redeploying our model that had been exposed back out there. And when the dust settled, myself and my co-founder said, this is going to be a problem for everybody who's deploying machine learning models into their products and so we knew we needed to create a, a dedicated cybersecurity solution to defending AI and ML.
0: Here's an interesting part: the idea itself is not enough. I have ideas every day. You have an idea, but you have an example of how it actually worked or what it may cause. What was the validation? Like, what did you do to understand that when you're going to create it, somebody's going to buy it, somebody's going to use it, it will actually will be useful for other people as well.
1: I think that you're absolutely right. It's easy for us and it's obvious to us when we live that sort of scenario in the real world, but we have to start convincing the world that this is the next issue on the threat landscape. We wanted to make it as real and interpretable as possible for folks who were not data scientists or folks who were not cybersecurity experts and really just people need to understand how exposed they are. We started creating demonstrations of really these types of attacks to show how simple it is and really how exposed organizations that have deployed artificial intelligence or machine learning models into their products are. Because this concept of AI at the edge has your customers or the public interacting with those machine learning models as part of the normal use of that product, but that exposes it just as much to threat actors. And so when you start bringing real use cases in for things like fraud models and how an attacker can bypass a fraud model to create as many fraudulent transactions as they want, or Somebody who wants to reverse an algorithmic trading model because they want to understand how to make just as much money as some of those hedge funds out there, or some of the models in, with insurance data, with healthcare data. There are so many examples of models that could be such a high level of motivation for an attacker to be able to reverse and abuse. And so when we started really tying those use cases together, the rest of the world really started to understand. And that allowed us to go raise some money and build some products. And you got us to today, because you're right, we're relatively young. We founded in March of last year. But because we've been working on this idea for a while, we built some solutions relatively quickly. We have two products today, but it's really important that everybody that we're showing them to and discussing this with understands at a very tangible real-world use case, what does this mean for me?
0: When you were going and showing the product, were you able to find the design partners?
1: Yeah, we had several early on, and that was really helpful because this isn't an attack vector that gets talked a lot about in the public. And that's mostly because regulation hasn't caught up yet. But there are certainly some organizations that are feeling these attacks. When we went to organizations with exposed models and said, hey, we have the defense mechanism for this, we found some folks who were very eager to participate with us. And some in the finance world, some in cybersecurity, just like we were, that were experiencing these attacks as well. And we started there. But we wanted to focus on a very universal solution for what we believe is going to be a very universally pervasive problem. And really already is. And and so we took a very unique way in which we wanted to defend these models, very similar to how EDR works on endpoints. We call our solution MLDR for machine learning models, and that allows us to protect sort of in an agnostic way. We don't really care about the use case, the type of data going into the model. We actually don't want to see any of that. We want to secure the model based on behavioral patterns. And I bring that up because that really makes it a problem for all industry verticals that are deploying machine learning. And what that meant was we just needed early adopters. We just needed folks who wanted to make sure they were securing this. And that could come in the form of a big organization that has put a lot of resources into machine learning or a small organization where, you know, a machine learning model is their only value proposition. And it's everything to that organization. We work with some groups that that have all kinds of different use cases. And we were able to find design partners, I wouldn't say easily, but I would say quickly. It was a good opportunity for us to work in many different use cases. And we're very grateful that we had some folks willing to kick the tires on the product.
0: When you were going and showing the product and explaining the problems, is in back of your mind, was to find design partners or it was something that you didn't expect to have? Or did you need design partners?
1: We wanted people to care. And there are so many different versions of how you could care about that. You could care about it in a way where you wanted to fund it and give us more resources to keep moving forward. You could care because... You're exposed and you want to defend yourself. You could care because you wanted it to be a differentiator between you and your competition and be able to tell your customers, like, we're taking steps to secure our machine learning. And we just told the story to anybody who was willing to listen. And then that really started growing some natural partnerships, whether it be design partners or whether it be investors, or now we have many customers. Basically, we wanted to shout this problem and our solution from the rooftops and just see who was interested in it. Looking back at it now, looking back at the last 18 months, it's such an obvious need that when you just think about how much humanity is really accelerating the adoption of machine learning technology right now, just immediately what's next? We're going to need to secure it. We're going to need to empower it with infrastructure. We're going to need to track it and log it. There's so many different sort of associated needs that go alongside it that the conversation is much easier to have today than it is 18 months ago, with especially with the explosion of generative AI tools. ChatGPT has just been such a catalyst for folks who are not usually working in AI and ML every day to understand the power associated with adopting these technologies into your products. We're grateful for some of those just big, loud stories that everyone has to confront now because it gets folks to realize you know, what this means.
0: Isn't this a bit funny? We spoke in the beginning of the recording that security should be the enabler and shouldn't be a showstopper. But if you look back in the history, DNS was created without security. SMTP was created without security. HTTP was created without security. FTP, okay, we're not going to talk about FTP and Telnet, but it's always created with productivity in mind. But the history repeats itself. We have ChatGPT. GPT. Two months after, we're now thinking about policies and what kind of data we put there. Interesting that we're complaining about this stuff, but we're still doing the same problems in a way, creating the same problems.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think it's one of the first things I'd say. To a CISO, and they're trying to understand what we do and why. Is look, these patterns are not different. This is the same cycle that you've seen 20 times now in your career of, you know, we have a new technology, we start to monetize it in different ways, and then we think later about how it can be abused. And we're seeing that. I think that cycle is getting faster and faster, but it still exists in all of its forms. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Whether it's ChatGPT, which it's a little bit funny because the GPT models and GPT 3.5, the initial model that is powering, QT has been around for a while, but AI quickly changes from a buzzword to a real tangible technology. And all we had to do was take one of those models and host it on a web server. And now everyone's saying, oh, hey, it's easy to interact with, but wow, this is real. Some organizations like Silence was a greater example where back in 2014, we were using machine learning technology in a real way, but there were so many organizations that were just using that as a buzzword to advance their kind of marketing that the whole world said, yeah, "AI ML, whatever, we know the drill there. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's just a constant pattern of overextending ourselves and then playing catch up. And we're absolutely seeing that with AI and ML because it's vulnerable in so many different ways. There's data poisoning, there's model inference exposures, there's code level of just the integrity of what's being used to build these models. It's incredibly vulnerable code. We had to build our entire new product around just the actual infrastructure of how these tools are getting deployed. It's all open source. It's all understood by the creators of these tools that it's incredibly vulnerable. Like capitalism wins in the end. People are saying, okay, hey, that's a tool that I can make some money on. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to figure out what that does to me later. We're trying to close that gap.
0: So tools like yours still not built by machines. They're built by human being. So we're going to talk about human being. You have an idea, you have validation, you have the money. Now you need to hire people. This is the interesting part. Hiring people, it's actually easy. Hiring the right people is the hard part. And... I believe, not just from my view, but also with all the people I discussed as part of this podcast, more than 40 already, is culture become important. And many other people in the industry also say, create your culture before you start going forward. So talk to me about the culture in the company and hiring people and how you actually validate that they're going to work with you, not going to be a yes person, be able to challenge you, but not too much challenge you and still do what they need to do.
1: I really appreciate the way in which you phrase that because it is so critically important to any organization, but even more so when it's an early stage organization like us, where you may only have 20 folks and everybody's wearing different hats, by the way. And I'm a firm believer that 90% of your success is going to be dictated by who you bring into that organization. So I think that's just so important. And that's true for a startup like us, but it was true for me beforehand when I was just building teams. And once you bring in the wrong people, there's not a whole lot of execution that you can do to override that. So it's so important and culture is very important for that. I'm also a firm believer that the more your organization talks about culture, the shittier your culture probably is, right? So it's just sort of, you need the right people. You need to have some organic ability to work with each other and to respect each other and to appreciate each other. And so if there is a theme with our culture, it's education. We love the idea of making sure that you can learn from someone every day. You can teach somebody something every day. There's no bad questions. Everybody on the planet has the ability to teach someone something every day. And so we really believe in never having to do anything by yourself. And then really, when it comes to people, one plus one equals three, when it's diverse experiences and backgrounds and the ability to teach each other. And so we focus heavily on that. And when we bring people in, we want to know how committed they are to empowering those around them, as well as being empowered from those around them. And that usually ends up being a really strong leading indicator into everything else about the culture in terms of their empathy level, their willingness to commit to solving a problem together. And there's so many different things you can measure about people, or at least attempt to measure about people. But that's one that we have found be really important. Now, I should also qualify all this by saying we're working with a lot of folks we've worked with in the past. So we've had a great opportunity to keep a lot of the best people that we love working with together. The team is the best part of a hit layer. That's a no-brainer for me. That's I'm so impressed. I've been able to hire heroes of mine. And so we work worked together in the past. Few, but that doesn't remain true when you move into later stages of a company and you have to hire hundreds of people instead of tens. And then It really needs to be about a strong culture and a strong method for understanding how we're going to be able to work together and accomplish things. It's important now. It'll be just as important later. But that's one thing that I'm very proud of within Layer is really what we've been able to establish so far.
0: So let's go deeper on this part, because you mentioned about hiring people and bringing the company to a bigger stage. In majority of the companies, the CEO is the guy or the girl. That actually doing the first sales. And later on, they want to trust that somebody else will able to sell the baby in the same level as they do. What's your approach here? I'm not sure if you have a sales team or not on where you are in this process, but how you train people, how do you trust people that they will be on the same level as you to make sure they can take care of the business?
1: It's so important. And it really is trusting someone with the entire concept of Hidden Layer, right? If somebody is going to represent Hidden Layer... In front of the world they need to embody what we are all about we hired someone very early on her name is abigail mains and she's our chief revenue officer in title but she's a lot more than that in terms of all the hats she has to wear and the responsibilities she is and actually that's a little bit of a difference from us and some other organizations out there a lot of early stage startups like to start on like the chief marketing officer side we thought it would be better to work with abigail because number one a lot of those core values are shared she's very empathetic in her sales process she wants to make sure that we're solving a real problem for real people who are going to improve their day-to-day lives when they're using the solution. And we're also going to get their feedback and build that into what we're doing on our roadmap. And so she's really an awesome sort of person to facilitate that relationship in both directions. And again, somebody we worked with in the past, we've been able to understand that. We worked with her at Silence as well. And so we knew a lot of that ahead of time, but that's a really important way to look at it. And it's even more important in a new category, right? Because you're looking at one way to solve a brand new problem. And there's really no expectations on the customer side yet in terms of something to accept with regularity of what they've seen with other vendors. There's a lot of trust. You only get one chance to do this right with customers and with partners. And so it takes the right people. It takes the right message. It takes the right sort of cohesion and belief of how we're approaching this problem. It all comes down to the people. It all comes down to who you bring in to represent you, who you bring in to challenge you, who you bring in to improve all this. And in this case, Abigail is absolutely the right person. And we feel very strongly about that as a unit, but that's on the sales side. And then that same question you asked can be, Pointed at every vertical or every sort of pocket of the company with engineering, with managing the product, with reaching out to customers, all of that. It remains true through everyone who comes to work with
0: us. As a CEO, and you mentioned different divisions, you need to take care of many different tasks. Is there a secret for Chris to stay on top of all the tasks, delegation, prioritization, special tools, AI?
1: It's almost along what we were just talking about and it's having the right people. Some of it you can't get around. it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of making sure you're exposed to everything that's going on. There's no getting around long hours and a lot of time spent solving these problems that pop up and making sure everybody's pointed at the same thing. But a lot of it has to do with the team around you and can you trust them? Can you delegate to them and know that they're Going to consider it in the same ways that you would. And it's not always about just trying to imprint the way that I would approach a problem onto those who can do this otherwise to it. You also need to be just as interested in a unique experience and somebody saying to you, hey, maybe I don't need to solve this the same way you would. Maybe I need to solve this the way that I would. And you need to appreciate that and accept it and think about things like, is there a better way to do it? Because there always is. And it's really about empowering those around you, trusting them and giving them the autonomy they need to solve this problem, but then also giving them feedback around hey, if it was me and I would have done it this way, this is what I would have done. Let's look at how you did it and then say, you know what, hey, your way was better in this case, or hey, this is why I would have done it differently. And you always want to tie that back to what it means for the entity. So again, the answer is sort of people. It's having the right people to, to deal with that. But in both directions, they're learning from them as well and understanding. When you hire somebody in an area you're not an expert in, they're going to be better than you at it. And it's not always about forcing them into the mold of what you think that solution should be. But it's also about empowering them to own and create how they want to solve those problems, too. It's very much a, kind of an open relationship with understanding the goals that you want to accomplish. And it's my job to make sure we're all motivated the same way and we're all looking towards the same end goal. As long as nobody's motivations are different and they want to have a successful hidden layer and they want to solve these problems for the customers and all of those things, that's the most important thing. And then you can get into the little sort of details beyond that.
0: If you can go back to the beginning of the journey, would you do anything differently?
1: Oh, sure. I'm thinking, you know, that's probably a daily thing, right? What you would do differently. And I think that we're very lucky in that we've had a lot of success early on. A lot of that's timing. A lot of that's being in front of a problem. It's choosing our approach. We could have gone many ways with that. And so I think the big things, like the answer would be no. I think I'm really happy with the way we've gone about this, but there's many little things, many decisions you have to make every day. For example, right now, if we've got 20 folks who want to talk to us today and we've got enough time to talk to maybe half of that. What do you do there? And there's certainly things that I would have said, maybe I should have given more attention to this potential partner over here or maybe I should have focused less on something that ended up being a dead end. There's plenty of those examples. I think the good news is The major issues, the major decisions we made, we made the best decisions that we could at the time. And then so far, those are all holding true, which is fantastic. Only having been around for a year, I'm sure there'll be many opportunities for some other critical mistakes to make down the road too, but we have a pretty good process with a good team here. And we're very inclusive in our decision-making, which is great. It's not us co-founders in a closed room deciding what's going to go on. We have a lot of exposure and input to the staff and to the leadership team to make sure that we're all kind of making these unified decisions together. And I think that's helping out a lot, but yet to say we wouldn't do anything different is crazy. Anybody who tells you that is lying. There's plenty of little things here and there that, that we can do better every day. Can you share some of them? Yeah, I think there's many examples of things that we would change. I think if I were to try and identify one, there were some amazing people who wanted to be a part of this journey from an investor or partner perspective. And we could have given people more opportunity to work with us, at least earlier on. I also think we were waiting quite a long time for the market to be ready for a solution like this. And then retroactively looking at it, like maybe we should have come out even earlier and we could have had another year under our belt for something like this. There's certainly a ton of what-ifs there. I think that 99% of it has held really strong, but there's always a good opportunity to reflect back and say, you know, maybe we should have done X, Y, or Z. And it's important to look back at those things so you can ensure that you're always making the right decisions moving forward, or at least the best that you can at the time. I'm sure there's a lot of examples there. Nothing to the point of regret, but it's always important to reflect on that.
0: Can you give any advice for entrepreneurs that want to start a company?
1: That's something I think about quite a bit because as a first-time founder going through this, the joke around here is I wish we were doing this with a worse idea the first time, because it's something we feel very passionate about, but we're also learning how to be entrepreneurs. There's a ton of fantastic reading out there, and I read a lot ahead of time. I wish I read a lot more from examples of investors who are willing to give a lot of their story, because there's a lot of logistics involved with things like putting together the organization, who do you want to invite in, how do you want to control all of that. And so there's a lot of great stories out there that really give a lot of indication. So I would say read a lot before you get into this, because there's fantastic examples of what to do right, what to do wrong. So I think that makes sure that you come into something like this as informed as you possibly can be. Because oftentimes there's a pretty big divide between somebody who has a great idea for, for a company in tech and whether or not you have any clue what that means in terms of how to raise money, how to hire, how to go to customers there's a lot of people out there with that experience too, but you got to make sure that you do that from an informed position. So I would say if you want to get into something like this, do it as informed as possible. And there's a lot of great resources out there, a bunch of the books behind me that can really help you do that from a more informed position.
0: We're going to transition to something I call a dark side. This is where we talk about stuff didn't go as we expected. Everybody's still listening. Thank you very much for listening. Continue listening. This is some of the juicy things that people like to listen and understand as well. And Lauren, Chris, can you show what didn't go as you expected, maybe what you learned from it, or maybe you just didn't go as expected and did this
1: happened. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard, right? It's hard. There's a lot of success within layer, which is great. And we love celebrating it, but it's not all roses, right? There's certainly examples. I think what's been tough for me is the family side of things. There are some 20 hour days out there. There's a lot of travel. There's a lot of time. I have two young kids, a lot of time that you're not at events that you would love to be at. And by the end of the day, justifying it to yourself because of what you're trying to accomplish for the broader good. And you want to get that out there. And when we provide these solutions, that's helping a lot of other people get to do those things. And there's a lot of that there too. But you sacrifice. Yeah, I think you sacrifice quite a bit. And that's real. That's something you should spend a lot of time thinking about before you dive into something like this because it impacts a lot of folks around you. I'm very lucky that my wife is a part of this journey. She's our graphic designer, actually. So if anything you've seen on LinkedIn or any of the stuff that we put out in our collateral, she designed it all, our logos, our colors, all that kind of stuff, which is cool because she gets to be a part of it too. And we're a little bit of a team in that regard. But at the end of the day, you have responsibilities and you have people who want to share some of your time and your kids or your family and all those things. And you miss a lot of that. I think that's something that's worth noting.
0: When you have the bad days, something doesn't work as you expect it. What Chris does to get back to himself? Meditation, sports.
1: Yeah, when we have a bad day, when something doesn't go the way we want it to, it's important to focus on the good things. But it's also important to disconnect a little bit too. One of my hobbies is I'm a poker player. I love to play poker. And so sometimes I just need to do that to reset. Get out there, focus on something completely different. Don't think about it. There's not a lot of time to do that these days, especially in the earlier days, it was good. Maybe one day a month, get out there for a couple hours and do something like that. And so for some people that's around a golf, for some people that's meditation or yoga or something along those lines, for me, it's poker. I can get lost in poker and I love it very much. And that's a great reset for me. I think it's important that somebody who's quite as dedicated to something in terms of a startup, you need to have that disconnect. It's not healthy. To obsess, you need to force yourself to turn it off sometimes and turn on something else. For me, that's poker. I really enjoy all aspects of the game, but it's important that everybody has something like that.
0: Poker meditation is definitely new. Didn't hear about this yet. So, this is cool. And poker, probably very good for business as well. When somebody is trying to tell you they're going to get the deal and you keep your poker face, getting happy right away, you wait for the stuff. So it's definitely good.
1: There are certainly some overlap there. Yeah, absolutely. With all confidence, I can say that poker has made me a better businessman.
0: Chris, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I'm really happy to learn about the technology, you, the motivation, and good luck there in Sandbox competition.
1: Evgeny, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. These are great questions. I've enjoyed it quite a bit.